0: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bizzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Todd Green, associate professor of religion at Luther College, about his wonderful new book, Fear of Islam, an introduction to Islamophobia in the West, published by Fortress Press in 2015. Islamophobia, both as is a term and concept, has a storied and complicated history, and understanding its many layers in our current historical moment remains important for any number of audiences and purposes. By focusing on contemporary incarnations, but also giving historical context, Professor Todd Green accomplishes an admirable task in The Fear of Islam. He combines lucid and accessible prose with meticulous attention to detail and extensive footnotes. He strikes an impressive balance while simultaneously aiming at a scholarly and lay audience. The book explores the contours of Islamophobia both in North America and Europe, which outlines instructive similarities and differences as the phenomenon surfaces in various contexts with an array of colonial and political histories. Green organizes his book in smart fashion as well, making the chapters accessible on their own, for teaching purposes, for example, though likely best understood in sequence as each chapter builds organically on what precedes it. He explores the history of Orientalism, the impact of 9-11, professional Islamophobes, media portrayals of Islam and Muslims, and offers some prescriptions at the end for combating Islamophobia. Green combines historical analysis, social scientific polls, and also conducts interviews with the likes of Keith Ellison, Ingrid Matson, and Tariq Ramadan, all of which contribute to the richness of the text. In terms of applications, any number of college instructors could consider adapting this text for use in the classroom, and it will also interest scholars who focus on Islam in the West, critiques of Orientalism, religion and politics, as well as the lay reader who seeks an erudite yet digestible introduction to the enigma of Islamophobia. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Todd Green. Good afternoon, Todd. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invitation, Elliot. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed reading your book, and it's, it's been a pleasure to read it both in terms of the content as well as the really accessible manner that you you crafted it in and so on 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 this note you you talk about how thinking about students played a big role in how you wrote the book so could you say a little bit about how the book project sort of came, came to you and what kinds of inspirations are behind it
1: yeah, I mean, there's several sort of factors driving why I'm even interested in Islamophobia, and then there's also the teaching component. So I can start with the first, which is the the biographical part, and yeah. that's um, my interest in Islamophobia is broadly connected to my interest in anyone who finds themselves as a part of a religious minority community, um, and part of that stems from my own experience growing up in the deep south in Alabama, where I felt like a religious minority growing up or just someone who didn't quite fit in um, to the dominant religious culture of of the Deep South and how challenging it was even for me uh, to sort of negotiate my own convictions and how do I express them and how do I live them out uh, when they are in tension with or could be perceived to be in tension with the dominant culture. So my own growing up was sort of uh, heavily influenced in terms of the this attention to the experience of being in the minority, though that's certainly different than being in, in the Muslim minority, <laughs> the United States, but but being anyone who's in the minority or historically communities that are in the minority position and have to negotiate their identity with the majority, that's something that's that's definitely of interest to me. It affects the way I teach, how I teach history of religion courses, particularly. So that's one of the things that drives me. Islamophobia is is particularly the community that's aimed at, right? Is Muslims who have had to negotiate their their place in a, in, a, in societies that are that are not always welcoming uh, toward them. I was also right after college an immigrant to to Europe for a year or a little bit around a year, and so I had this immigrant experience in Europe that gave me a, a certain connection to Muslims who were also immigrating at the time. This is in the nineteen nineties. Um, you know, though my experience was in some ways as challenging as theirs in other ways not, you know, my name was Todd and not Muhammad and that might have affected, uh, you know, applying for jobs and things like that. But generally speaking, I've, I've always felt this connection to Muslims in Europe, particularly, uh, because I immigrated at a time when there were a lot of other Muslims, a lot of other Muslims were immigrating, uh, from places like Iraq and Iran, uh, Turkey, the former Yugoslavia. So, uh, so those are sort of the biographical pieces that sort of have given me uh, a particular uh, interest in and lens to engage Muslim minority communities and the experiences they, they go through uh, in the West.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what kind of uh, education did you go through in terms of graduate school to get where you are now?
1: Well, I'm a, histo- a historian of religion by training, particularly modern European religious historian, which is not something many people go out and do get a PhD in, but uh, that's – and part of that comes from my experience of living in Europe and was fascinated by how different Europe seemed to be in terms of the role of religion versus not only the United States generally, but the Deep South where I grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I lived in Sweden and Sweden and Alabama are <laughs> very different uh, in sure. terms of the public role and influence of religion. So. Um, so, uh, you know, when I went to get, do a PhD, I was very interested in, in what were the sort of factors that led to the declining public role of, of religion, and particularly Christianity, in Europe. But that automatically also gave me a, this lens to well, widen the tension over over the growth and increasing visibility of Islam, you know, a minority religion. Mm-hmm. And so I went and did my training uh, at Vanderbilt University, my PhD training at least, and um, modern European religious history. So I'm not an Islamic studies scholar in the classic sense. I, 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 I get at Islam primarily as a minority religious tradition using the lens of history and sociology.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's helpful in terms of the way uh, you present the book because you you come at it from a clearly interdisciplinary way that helps contextualize a lot of things that are going on in Europe versus the United States, which I hope we can come back to in a few minutes. Um, So last last question about your your training, Uh, while you were in graduate school, were there any kinds of uh, conversations or books or particular mentors that stuck out to you and really shaped and formed your perspective on scholarship in a certain kind of way?
1: Well, the the person I studied under at Vanderbilt was a man named El Johnson who wasn't uh, someone who specialized in Islam in Europe per se, but was certainly very helpful in guiding me in in the craft of of being a modern European religious historian, that very small number of people who do this, at least in the United States. Um, So I I, I owe a lot to him in terms of of getting up to speed on the broader theories and uh, historical, social, political developments in Europe that steered me in that direction. But if I were to, yeah, the question you asked is even broader. You know, who have I encountered? Who, what thinkers and uh, scholarship have I encountered that really changed me and, and sort of shaped the way I I get this topic? And I can rattle off all sorts of people, some of whom make appearances in the book. Sure, yeah. Oh, well, and the Tariq Ramadan and Sabah Mahmoud and Gyatri uh, Spivak and, and other theorists, uh, even Franz Fanon, who's not probably explicitly mentioned in the book, but his postcolonial thought's have been very important to me. But hands down, the, the, the scholar uh, whose books changed the way I understand history is Edward Said, who himself is not a historian and wasn't a religious studies scholar. He was a comparative literature professor at Columbia. Um, but uh, Edward Said's Orientalism uh, fundamentally changed the way I thought about my vocation as a historian in the kinds of questions I ask. You know, who gets to tell the story of a religious community? What context are they embedded in? What regimes of power are at work? And particularly when you have the context of colonialism or imperialism, how does that shape the way a majority or a dominant religious – a dominant society or a dominant political entity uh, might uh, tell the story of a different part of the world or, or a religious tradition that's not uh, as dominant in their own context? And, and for Saeed that's very much how many scholars in, in the West, uh, particularly in the 19th and into the 20th century – had told the story of Islam, embedded in the context of of, of empire, and uh, you know, sort of creating a a, a a discourse about how how we talk about Islam and how we talk about Muslims, that has been profoundly you know transformative in my own work. Even as I, like many other scholars, could quibble with various findings he has here and there. A lot, everyone debates Saeed, who gets into our line of work, but. Um, but he is still a giant in the field, and I know very few of any scholars of Islamophobia who haven't been influenced significantly by
0: Sayyid's Orientalism. Right, right. And so in terms of what you were just saying, like controlling the discourse, so if we could take a step back and let's look at this key term, Islamophobia. You know, hmm. like obviously it, it sets alarms off for certain kinds of people. It's a really important word for other kinds of people. So could you give us, in a nutshell, even a, a large nutshell, what, what does this term mean, broadly speaking, and how, how are you employing it in the book?
1: Broadly speaking, uh, you, know, you can define Islamophobia in two related ways. It's an irrational fear, hostility, or hatred toward Muslims and Islam. And it's also the exclusionary and discriminatory practices that arise from that kind of irrational fear. And hatred. So it can be both about attitudes towards Muslims for the religion they practice, and it can also be about actions, including policies and whatnot, that um, have an impact on Muslims, both uh, locally and, and globally speaking, based upon those types of,
0: uh, of fears. And so again, we have, we have this word fear, of course, which is part of phobia. So right. how, how would you say Islamophobia is similar and different to other types of phobias?
1: Well, you know, when I think of phobia, and probably a lot of people do, they, they think of not just fear, but sort of an irrational fear, a fear that's not grounded in, in, in reality or, or, or logic or what, whatnot. Um, and to that extent, any phobia, homophobia, uh, arachnophobia, I don't know, we could talk about uh, phobias broadly speaking. But many phobias themselves, what sort of connects them together is it's not just a fear because fear fear can be uh, a necessary action in certain circumstances, but but it's an irrational fear, right? And usually, particularly applied to a broad category in this case of people um, uh, that sort of lumps them all together as, as uh, you know as as objects to be feared. Mm-hmm. It, in terms of what separates it, um, particularly, uh, I think of. Um, of the racial component, right? Um, so what separates, uh, if we broaden this question to just bigotry generally speaking, what separates uh, Islamophobia from um, say, uh, uh, other kinds of discrimination? Um, and, uh, you know, what connects at least Islamophobia with, say, anti-Semitism is the racialized component as well, which is not necessarily a component of all bigotries of, towards all different categories of human beings. But with, Without a doubt, Muslims are, at least in the West, racialized. And I'm not saying they are a race. I am saying they are racialized and treated, and culturally speaking, as a kind of homogeneous entity. And that separates Islamophobia from some other forms of bigotry, though I think that's also what connects it to another form of religious bigotry, Mm anti-Semitism.
0: And so... You do, I think, a really helpful job in introducing how the term has a, you know, a genealogy that, that goes back about 100 years or so, but probably a lot of people are going to think about 9-11 as some kind of catalyst for, if not creating, then at least transforming Islamophobia. So could you say a little bit about how 9-11 changed or didn't change or continued the, the legacy of Islamophobia in the West?
1: Yeah, sure. I I think, um, you know, the concept of Islamophobia, at least, uh, in the modern sense, was born in the late 1990s in Britain um, with a study by the Runnymede Trust, and I talk a little bit about that in the book. So 9-11 didn't introduce the concept of Islamophobia or even the word, which, uh, as you mentioned, also even goes back 100 years or so. But certainly 9-11 opened this new chapter in the war on terror that ensued from uh, the 9-11 attacks. You know, one of the things that changed, I think, with 9-11 is uh, sort of a bearing down on the political establishments of not only the United States but some of our Western or European allies when it came to seeing uh, large swaths of Muslim societies and Muslims in our midst even as, as existential threats. It's not that that was unknown prior to 9-11. But it, it got raised to this the, the ultimate level, I think, after nine eleven, where Muslims were now the uh, public enemy number one. When I was growing up in the seventies and eighties, Muslims were not public enemy number one. That would have been the Russians, right? That was uh, every every movie I can think of with the quote unquote bad guy in the seventies and eighties. Most of those movies were dealing with Russians and communism and that sort of thing in the context of the Cold War, and, when, and the United States had a sort of ambivalent relationship with Muslim countries and Muslim majority regions during that period. But by and large, Muslims, broadly speaking, and even uh, Muslims who endorse what we generally maybe call Islamism or political Islam, uh, prior to the late 1970s, that wasn't deemed in the United States, for example, as a huge uh, problem. It's the Iranian Revolution onward that starts to change that a bit, though even in the 80s and 90s, we still sort of have an ambivalent relationship to political Islam. After 9-11, that ambivalence largely goes out the window, and now in, any any Muslim who's sort of considered traditional or conservative or whatever uh, becomes an object of suspicion and must be uh, must warrant surveillance and detentions and registration programs, things I talk about uh, later in the book as well. So it really creates the security state and the securitization of Muslims. Uh, it, it takes on a, a new sort of uh, level, really after 9-11 in a way that it didn't prior to 9-11.
0: So in a a little bit, I'd like to ask about, yeah, how how security measures changed after 9-11. But before we get there, could you say, how how are European reactions broadly conceived different and similar to American reactions in terms of Islamophobia?
1: Right. Well, you know, Europe. In countries particularly those who are our allies initially were very much uh, supportive of the United States, the war on terror, uh, you know that was not something that was just the United States acting alone, particularly the invasion of Afghanistan. It became a little bit more complicated with Iraq. Um, but you know Euro- European nations generally speaking um, were kind of in line with us. But what happened on 9/11 definitely changed security measures in Europe, um, just as what happens on European soil, uh, such as the Madrid or London bombings uh, changes changes things here in the United States as, as well. So there is a relationship, uh, a sort of a symbiotic relationship almost between these two parts of uh, of the West when it comes to Muslims and, and this post nine eleven world. But Muslims, generally speaking, in Europe uh, in the post nine eleven era, have uh, really had to endure far more um, restrictions. Uh, broadly speaking, I think, than Muslims here in the United States, and that's not to downplay the U.S. and the challenges we face here, Uh, but Muslim minority communities um, have faced in the post-9-11, there are probably many more challenges in European context, in part due to the fact that European nations are much more comfortable regulating religion, if you will, and its expression, and in part because of the demographics, there are other factors feeding alienation and discrimination in Europe uh, against Muslims, which was true prior to 9-11 as well, uh, but certainly has uh, come to the fore in post-9-11. That includes uh, in some cases poverty or unemployment. Um, Muslims, generally speaking, in Europe, uh, including after 9-11, have been lower down the socioeconomic ladder uh, than Muslims in the United States, who tend to be middle class or higher. And that has shaped the experiences of Muslims in the post-9-11 era. In short, Eliot, uh, many American Muslims will complain uh, a lot about Islamophobia in the United States, but they tend to be more optimistic about what the future holds for them in spite of all that's happened in, in the securitization of Muslims. In Europe, you don't get that same optimism. There's much more pessimism about the future.
0: And, and this relates to what you are saying at the beginning, too, in terms of comparing your experience in Sweden and Alabama, right? Bro- broad, broadly speaking, and I find students are surprised to You know, think about America as like a very religious country because I think, you know, if college-age students hang out with a bunch of college-age students, there's plenty of healthy skepticism about, you know, tradition and religion and stuff like that. But on the whole, America tends to be more religious and committed to traditions than than parts of Europe. And so this is part of the, the context, correct? And absolutely.
1: You experience what I experience in the classroom. I, I also have students who tend to think of, of, of the United States as being fairly secular. And part of that's just the generation that they, they're in, where we do see the rise of the quote-unquote nuns, you know, the, the people who check none of the above on uh, religious surveys who may not have a strong religious identity. But uh, broadly speaking, you know, religion still has a very prominent role in the public sphere and public space, in the United States in the political realm, um, you know, we, we, we've had a Catholic elected president, uh, but mo- for the most part, presidents have come from a Protestant background. I'm, I still can't imagine quite yet that we are in a position to be able to elect an atheist uh, to the presidency. If I'm in Sweden, that's a non-issue, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. In the United States, that is still a, a, a very uh, powerful uh, issue. The, the expectation that our leaders uh, have a religious identity, that it grounds their morality and the sense of a moral compass. And. And, yeah, and my students struggle to get that, and part of what you're teaching is trying to get them to unlearn a little bit of what they think they know about the con- this context. And as a historian of religion, that can that can be helpful. But um, but when I first started teaching, this was less of an issue. It's becoming more of an issue now where you have to actually teach students that there is a lot of religion that, that's very powerful and religious communities that have a lot of
0: social capital
1: in the United States in a way that would not be the case in Europe. Yeah.
0: And so... You talk about sort of different reasons for Islamophobia. There's the political mood. There's things that happen on, in the news, things that happen in movies. And there's a particular category you talk about, and I think the term is provocative. You talk about professional Islamophobia. And so, you know, we might think of that, well, okay, people on the news are getting paid and people in Hollywood are getting paid. But you mean something, you mean something different, a little bit more... Uh, calculated. So, could you tell us about professional Islamophobia and who some of the key players are?
1: Yeah. So, professional Islamophobia, and you know, other scholars call this the Islamophobia industry, but this is basically this cadre of, you know, authors, bloggers, some scholars, politicians, and even some journalists uh, in Europe and the United States who who really make a living. And, and predominantly make a living off of dehumanizing and demonizing Muslims. These are not people who just make an occasional off-the-cuff remark about Muslims and then kind of go on and do other things. For most part, people who are professional Islamophobes, they devote their lives and their their very vocation is to to warn people in the United States or in Europe about the real dangers that Islam as a religion and Muslims as a people pose, you know, to to the future of our nations and and uh, the way i describe this oftentimes when i speak publicly is that these are folks who when they wake up in the morning they they start to think immediately of you know how can i demonize muslims better today than i did yesterday and they'll spend their waking hours for the most part trying to do that on their blogs or in books and writing or interviews and then the next day they'll try to to, to up the ante right this is a this is an Important component of professional Islamophobia, and they make a living off of doing this. In some cases, a uh, quite a handsome living. So, if you, for example, um, look at a study done this past this this year, actually from 2016, that was released by uh, the Center for Race and Gender Equality at, at UC Berkeley, and, and in conjunction with uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations, it's, it's a study called "Confronting Fear," and they found that there, in the United States alone, there are 33 anti-Muslim Individuals or organizations that had access over a period of five or six years, and from 2008 to 2013, had access to about 206 million dollars in revenue, and, and it can tap into that that type of money in order to spread their message and to reward people in those organizations who did this kind of work. You know, 200 million dollars uh, over a period of five years or so—that is an industry. You know, these, these aren't just people who are who are engaged in a hobby, that they make a living off of demonizing Muslims. And there's money and power and privilege and political leverage that can be had with that versus what you and I do. Uh, there's, just, there's not a lot of money in the anti-Islamophobia uh, business. But uh, if, you, if, you, if you and I were to change teams, uh, <laughs> we might have uh, a lot more opportunities come our way in terms of money.
0: Yeah, no, I, I tell my students that sometimes, completely jokingly, but, you know, if I... Ever wanted to, you know, have a career where I could like make a lot of money. Like like you said, I could I could change teams and probably find some people to pay me to spread that message. But so so on the note, I think we can say this jokingly because, you know, by and large, if you go to an Islamic studies panel at the American Academy of Religion and you know you talk about your book, I'm guessing this isn't scientific. Ninety nine percent of the people in the room are going to be totally sympathetic to the kinds of things you're talking about, and so let's take the, the the figure of Daniel Pipes, which I think is which you talk about in the book. He's a little bit different from these other so-called professional Islamophobes because he has he has a PhD from Princeton, he has academic training, and so how how do how does someone like Pipes see himself? So you're talking about you know you wake up in the morning and you know I'm going to go demonize Muslims. So do they do they think about things on those terms or is it a little bit different?
1: I doubt he thinks of it as demonizing Muslims. He thinks of it probably as telling the truth, right? Um, so he and I would would, te- would tell his own story um, quite differently. But pipes is, does stick out in the Islamophobia industry. There aren't many people like him. Most of the people I talk about in that chapter uh, are the exact opposite. They don't have any academic training and and, and Islamic studies or religious studies in many cases. Um, uh, A lot of what they've learned, they've learned off the Internet, you know, uh, heaven forbid. But um, Pipes does have this, you know, uh, these scholarly credentials. Uh, And he, I think he sees himself as part of a certain, with a connection to a certain political establishment, at least going back to their 80s and and, and 90s, uh, with certain... Investments uh, about uh, what or what we should be invested in as a nation in the Middle East when it comes to our policies. So I think he sees himself as as really someone who's doing what it takes to keep the United States in a position of of dominance and power. In the word I use for that is just empire. Um, But with Pipes, you know, and he this is his own words. He would he still has gone on to say about his academic background is that the reason he left academia uh, and doesn't really do that anymore is because he found that he had the politics of a truck driver. I think that's the way he, he, he puts it. So, uh, he's a disgruntled academic who would, would be pulling his hair out, going to the American Academy of Religion and having to listen to you or me talk about our latest scholarship. You know, this is exactly the kind of stuff that he thinks is so dangerous. So he really is an outlier in having that, that academic training, but, but he doesn't really draw on that very much. Um, and certainly that experience when it comes to the kind of work that he does now, he's, he's very much shifted gears. But, yeah, most of the people I do talk about in the book or uh, in that industry are, uh, are not trained at all. They, they've kind of – they're self, self-proclaimed experts on Islam, right, uh, which is what's so frightening. Right. Uh, and Pike would be one of the few who could at least say that I have some credentials uh, right. Of, right. in the study of the Middle
0: East. Right. So with people like Irshad Manji, Pamela Geller, Ayan Hirsi Ali, you talk about uh, so how, how, how does one become a professional Islamophobe? Do you need special training, a compelling life story? you need to meet the right people at the right time? What, is there anything that these people have in common with, with Pipes being the exception? Well, if they have anything in common, and
1: this, this is non-Muslims and Muslims are in this category, right? What they would certainly share in common is they're, they're, they they tend to be culturally very conservative. Uh, they they tend to be invested in Western dominance in if not Western imperial projects almost to a person. Um, they they are also very media savvy, um, and, and it, it takes some ability to do that to be able to, to know how to push the media's buttons. What what garners attention? If I say this or write this book. Um, how do I do it in a way that CNN and, and, and the New York Times and others are going to want to pay attention to me and, and interview me when they need an expert? Um, and all of them sort of share that in common. Uh, what, where they might differ a little bit is, is on their personal narratives, though they all have one. But I, I think I'll focus particularly on Manji and, and Ayan Hershey Ali, who are both uh, either have a Muslim background. Manji still, right. still practices, still, still identifies as Muslim. Hershey Ali does not. But that's a special category uh, that I actually find the most dangerous type, and we broadly call that in this field the native informant. And the native informant is the classic insider who who draws on her his experience within that community, in this case the Muslim religious community, uh, to um, sort of you know air the dirty laundry of that community to gain credentials with the non-Muslim or the majority population. So that whatever else they say about it, they can say – they can always follow that with, and the reason I – you should trust me is because I, I am a Muslim or I used to be a Muslim. And this becomes the equivalent of my Muslim friend, right? I've got a Muslim friend, and her name is Ayan Hirshia Ali, and she says that Islam is inherently prone to violence. And she should know, right? Because she herself once was a Muslim and had experienced all sorts of uh, – uh, uh, calamities and, and was subject to female genital mutilation and, and uh, has had death threats aimed at her, her and that sort of thing so they, they, they might inhabit different spheres of life in terms of journalism or politics or, or whatever um, but when it comes to native informants particularly it is that insider experience that becomes very powerful and when I, when I speak publicly, uh, Elliot and as someone in the audience is there to sort of push back on me I frequently get someone quoting someone like Ayan Hershey Ali with that assumption of, shouldn't she know? And Todd Green, therefore, you really don't know, do you? Because you haven't had her experiences. And it's a way to sort of silence any talk about Islamophobia. And it can be quite effective.
0: Mm-hmm. What, what do you think makes these particular kinds of people media savvy? So we can, l- later I hope to ask you about Tariq Ramadan, who is obviously also media savvy has an entirely different kind of project, but in terms of yeah media savviness, what are some common characteristics? Well,
1: uh, yeah, it's not not always just access to the media, but it's 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 oftentimes the way um, trying to tap in and having a having the ability to recognize where the dominant fears are and a given context for society, and then being able to to tap into those fears uh, with a specific book or. Or project or, or statement or whatever that is very likely to get the attention of the media. You know, and I, I think Ayan Hershey Ali is, you know, quote unquote brilliant at this, uh, particularly if you go back to her, um, the time she was in the Netherlands and she was a member of parliament. And so she's very much reading the political changes in the landscape in the post 9 11 era. And she taps into those anxieties or fears in the larger Dutch population quite well. And it really helps to channel, you know, a lot of uh, uh, interest in her, her way. And then, therefore, the media starts to pay a lot more of attention to her. She says things or she finds a way to say things that, that even if you and I shared her opinion, we couldn't say in quite the same way without maybe potentially being accused of racism or some other form of bigotry. But when Ayanna Hoshia Lee says it, um, that's not the case. And that's what people like Hoshia Lee are able to do. Is to kind of know what people want to have to hear, and have said about about these anxieties, but still "quote unquote" be able to get away with it. And and media tends to pay attention to people like that.
0: Mm -hmm. So, as you yourself are an educator and you've written a book about something that is of interest to educators broadly, but certainly people that teach about Islam. So, how do you handle a situation like that when you're giving a public talk and? Someone, you know, stands up to protest what you're saying and cites Ali as an authority and, aha, I've got you. How do you you respond to that in a pedagogically useful way?
1: That is a very difficult question to to answer, in part because I don't know if I do it well, Uh, and I've had a lot of experience, particularly this past year. I've had a lot of public speaking engagements. This has been a a year where a lot of people have been much more interested in the normal than Islamophobia, likely because of the presidential elections. But uh, so I, I've had a lot of public venues where this, this sort of thing happens. And it depends on how the question or the or the challenger sort of poses or his thoughts and if they're kind of aggressive or or not. But um, but, you know, I, I certainly will try to explain whatever, you know, whatever point they make, why Hershey Ali's views are problematic and I try to be balanced as I can. It's not – you know, Hershey, for example, talks a lot about Muslim women who suffer restrictions on civil liberties or other forms of abuse in Muslim majority countries. And I always try to acknowledge that it's, it's fair. It's fair to, to uh, take those sorts of things seriously. But we need to be careful – and I will try to sort of complexify. But we need to be careful not to, to paint all Muslim women with a broad brush or to assume that Muslim women don't have agency – or that uh, all Muslim had, sort of, Muslim women have the same experiences. So I always try to complexify uh, what Hershey Ali has almost always made as a very simplistic uh, point. But that said, I, I think what's underlying your question, Elliot, is is not just about someone like Ayan Hershey ali but it's it's anyone in an audience like that who might challenge Islamophobia broadly speaking. Uh, and um, how do you respond to someone who who is just convinced that not only that Ayan Hershey Ali is the authority, but that Islam really is an existential threat and all Muslims really are prone to violence. And, and, and then someone like Hershey Ali just confirms that. And I am found, this, this is, this is the, hopefully the low point of the interview here, <laughs> but I have found that responding with facts in, in sort of logical data points and Pew studies and things that I often draw on rarely changes someone's mind who is ground into that worldview. And it really has uh, given me pause in terms of how do we dismantle Islamophobia and, frankly, how do we dismantle any form of prejudice or bigotry. And the truth is, is and, and I think you probably know this from what you do, is that you know, responding with, with facts and with complexity and nuance rarely changes people's mind if they are really grounded into an anti-Muslim worldview. And, and we have to think about combating Islamophobia in other ways. And I try to keep that in mind when it, I get the Ayaan Ali quote thrown at me, or just as often uh, the ninth surah <laughs> um, um, uh, thrown at me um, from, from the Quran, right? Someone quotes the sword verse and wants to so sort of say, hey, I got you. You know, Islam really is inherently violent. See this verse. And, you know, and I can go all day with them about uh, Quranic interpretation or exegesis and Debates about how that verse has been interpreted and should be applied. Uh, but Elliot, I, I found in most cases for that person, it didn't matter. Right. You know, and you, and you would be in a better position to, to talk about that kind of exegesis than I would. But I, in my experience, at the very least, it doesn't change minds. But that goes back to what Islamophobia is. It's, an ira- it's not just fear. It's an irrational fear. And responding sometimes with reason is not the way to dismantle this form of bigotry.
0: Right. So I, I very much don't know if I, I would agree that I would be in a, p- a better position to answer a question like that precisely of what you say. Right. If the if the if the affect is, you know, not necessarily interested in so-called facts, then that's not necessarily the best rhetorical response to okay. these these kinds of uh, difficulties that people have, which which I, you, so so maybe what you're calling a low point. You, you, you interview some prominent figures in the book who strike me as pretty optimistic people about the, the future of Islamophobia, at least in the United States. So you, you talk with Keith Ellison, Tara Ramadan, Ibu Patel, Ingrid Madsen. Could you talk about uh, one, one or two of them and what your interviews were like and what some of their prognoses look like for the coming years?
1: Yeah, right. I, in, in the genesis of that particular chapter, because that chapter wasn't part of the original plan for the book, it was not to to end the book on a low on that low note, right? The uh, uh, the last chapter otherwise would have been, you know, the, the sort of the impact of Islamophobia and, and all, all the restrictions on civil liberties and hate crimes, and you know, it just uh, on the pessimistic note. And so, what I um, really wanted to do was end it on a more constructive note on how do we combat Islamophobia. And I chose to expand my conversation partners, um, you know, various people, many of them Muslim but not all of them, mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, who who nonetheless share in common a desire to fight this form of prejudice and to sort of get at best practices, understandings of how to do this. And, you know, a couple of – two people who really stood out to me. I mean they all stood out to me in various ways. Uh, one was Ingrid Mattson, whose whose responses to all my questions just were – were you know very thought provoking. The uh, one one instance was about the media coverage, and you know so much media coverage of Islam is 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 negative or focuses on terrorism or violent extremism, and and and, and, and you know mainstream media has such a prominent place and in, in the way it shapes our attitudes toward Islam. And how do we respond to that? You know that's a big question. And her her response was was this idea of needing to treat. Uh, media consumption as a public health concern, uh, <laughs> which I just thought was brilliant. Right? It's it's uh, you know we're not going to stop people from consuming the media, but certainly as a teacher, I want to to help my students be better consumers of media. Just like we want our children to be better consumers of food or whatnot, to think about what they're eating. You know, in the case of the media, to think about what we're what we're watching and to being able to engage it critically and ask critical questions and. And uh, that's what she was really getting at, and I thought that was uh, a very important way to sort of capture the, the, ch- the real challenge that we face when it comes to media portrayals of, of Islam and Muslims and how to, re- how to respond to, to those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also, also impressed, uh, you know, Keith Ellison, I interviewed him in his office. He was the first, first Muslim to be elected to Congress, and um, we had a great conversation a lot of which obviously didn't get into the book, but I was continually impressed with how much he knew about history uh, and religious history as a religious historian. I just I, I had this preconceived notion: okay, he's a politician, you know, he knows probably a little bit about everything, but 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 he could he you know the history of Islam and Andalusia and uh Muslim, you know not only Islamic history but uh, United States religious history and broadly speaking, uh, very little. Very well versed in, in these 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 uh, larger uh, uh, ethics of history that bear upon Islamophobia, and I was just impressed that he was recalling a lot of this from from kind of uh, memory. Right, he hadn't prepped for my interview with him in, in, in any specific way, uh, so that was very heartening. But all all of the people I interviewed were um, were really, really helpful. And I, uh, the, the one last person I'll mention is Miriam Francois Dera, who's a Journalist and a Islamic studies scholar in, in, in Britain, and she appears a lot on the media, in the UK. But she um, she really was raising important questions in my interview with her about uh, about where Britain and Europe generally are going when it comes to uh, li- this concept of liberalism and and illiberalism, and whether we're getting to a place where illiberal thoughts, including if, if not particularly illiberal illiberal thoughts, coming from some Muslims in the UK. Uh, are, are going to come to a point where these are going to be gonna penalized, right? That that the one way to securitize Muslims and to prevent terrorism is to to criminalize bad ideas <laughs> or, or ideas that are, are, are conservative or outside the mainstream. And so she's really pushing back on David Cameron and, and, and his idea of this muscular liberalism that Britain needs to return to um, and, and, and raising this question of, you know, just what are the limits to in Europe right now when it comes to how much they can handle religious diversity, political diversity, cultural diversity? And, and is there a place for, for the illiberal European? And, and Francois Serrao raised that question, I thought, uh, brilliantly in, in terms of how it really intersects with the anxiety over European identity today.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a, a good example of how Islamophobia is a type of political concern as well. Right. And, not only cultural or, you know, related to something like racism. And so on the note of policy oriented things, you asked the question, could policies be Islamophobic? And you talk about the Patriot Act or drones. So could you say something about policies in the United States or, or Europe that flirt with or cross the line of Islamophobia?
1: Yeah, I, I can. I, uh, in the post-9-11 era, we've had quite a, quite a few, and I just, had to, I just had to focus on some in the book. Um, there was a lot more I could have talked about. But uh, a great example, and this is something I've learned, Elliot, in giving public talks that a lot of non-Muslim Americans are unfamiliar with, is, is a registration program that uh, was instituted and overseen by the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, starting in 2002, and it lasted until 2011. It's called the National Security Entry-Exit Registration System, NSEERS. Most people haven't heard of it. uh, It's because most people weren't subject to it. But it was basically a registration program for non-immigrant Muslims, by and large Muslims, people from Muslim-majority contexts who had to especially register with the government. And it was a way of trying to keep track of people from a Muslim-majority context under the assumption that uh, these are the kinds of people who would be prone to carrying out an attack on the United States. It was very much a form of religious profiling. It was gendered as well, and it wasn't just anyone, it was men uh, of a certain age who were the ones who had to um, register. So, this is a you know, we hear Donald Trump and his campaigns has talked about registration programs for Muslims uh, in addition to banning Muslims. So, um, but but if, if even Trump were to be elected and, and get such a registration program established, it wouldn't be the first one. Um, It's just one that we're more uh, aware of because of of this particular campaign. But we've had a registration system for Muslims. It didn't work. It was discontinued in part because it didn't lead to any terrorist convictions, Um, uh, which the point I make in the book is that, uh, duh, you know, religious and racial profiling does not work. It is a horribly, not only an immoral practice, it's a horribly inefficient and ineffective practice in use of resources. But I talk about FBI and, you know, informants. I talk about, uh, other kinds of surveillance, the NYPD surveillance program, where you had people sort of infiltrating mosques, keeping track of what people were doing, what what news programs they were watching, what Muslim student associations on college campuses were doing. All of that was, a, was a policies that were being implemented by various law enforcement or intelligence agencies, oftentimes with a blessing, if not encouragement, of politicians uh, to, to basically engage in surveillance and profiling of Muslims here in the United States. Uh, and that, that's, that's just on the side of the Atlantic and, and in Europe, you have programs like the Prevent program in the UK, which is a, a counterterrorism program that's again about trying to anticipate the kinds of people who might be prone to carrying on a violent extremist act or quote unquote terrorist act. Uh, of course, the idea here is that to, you know you're trying to predict that's going to be, but you're developing then these these radicalization theories and models that almost all scholars have just obliterated as as being uh, ridiculous Um, but they were being heavily used in UK as they have been in in the United States as well to sort of predict you know who should be under surveillance who who should we keep an eye on and the things that the prevent program did with this included signs like well when you have a young Muslim man who starts to grow out his beard (laughs) you know we need to start paying attention to him right so facial hair becomes a potential sign of radicalization you know which is a completely irrational assumption to make but uh, but that deeply embedded nonetheless in many of these CTDs counterterrorism CBE programs on both sides of the Atlantic so we've seen uh, variations of this continue and you know it's changed a bit under the Obama administration in the United States but but you know drone attacks you know who can be labeled as combatants you know we we still have uh, a lot of more subtle Islamophobia at work here. At the very least, in terms of whose lives can be targeted, um, who can be, you know, collateral damage, and if they are Muslim in Yemen, it's not that big of a deal, right? And that is that is an implicit form of Islamophobia driving that that kind of policy. So the Obama administration in the United States hasn't changed that. It's 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 sort of shifted the way it
0: does. Right, and so there's there's institutionalized programs on behalf of the state, certain types of transnational things like airport security or security in general, which you've touched on. And there's also the issue of cultural institutions, so Hollywood, and you you spend some time exploring some films and you talk about Shaheen's work, Real Bad Arabs, uh, the book, and there's also a film. So could you say a little bit about what Islamophobia in Hollywood movie industry looks like and whether filmmakers are conscious about this or it's just so ingrained in them that, of course, Muslims are going to be the bad guys.
1: Yeah, right. The, the idea of media portrayals of Muslims is not just about news media or print media, but we use the language of mass media broadly. We're also talking about television and movies. And so you're asking particularly the question about Hollywood films. And, and there's this long history in Hollywood. It goes back to the silent movie era, of um, at the very least, drawing on Orientalist notions of, of Muslims in the Middle East and you know, the, the idea of the exotic or the or harems or or, or uh, you know the, the the sexual lecherous you know sheik uh, that's been there for almost since the beginning of Hollywood. Um, but we certainly see, I mean, even in the 70s and 80s, you had these these stereotypical Muslim quote unquote bad guy there. But but in the post nine eleven era, that has really kind of risen to this new level, um, where when Muslims are portrayed in almost any movie, it's either as terrorists or oftentimes in relation to terrorism. This is true of television uh, as well, and and that's the that's the problem, right? It's not just about well, okay, here's a movie that portrays Muslims as terrorists, but you see. Here's another movie that portrays Muslims as working with the CIA or, or collaborating with the United States government. So therefore, you know, we we've kind of covered our ends and we're not engaged in Islamophobia. Uh, but over and over, what you see constantly is the only way to talk about and to tell the story of any Muslim is to do so in a context of a, of a movie that or a plot that has to deal with violence or the war on terror or terrorism, generally speaking. Um I sometimes ask my students in my Islamophobia class name five Arab or Muslim movie characters in any movie you've ever seen by name. Not just terrorist number two, right? But, you know, okay. by, by name. And, and Zero Dark 30 and Osama bin Laden doesn't count, right? So, uh, and they, they can name none, almost always. E- even if they just saw, you know, American Sniper, they, they can't name the guy that was sort of the rival there, right? Then I say, name five white guys, presumably not Muslim, in any Hollywood movie that you've ever seen. And that takes the better part of five seconds, right? They just think of Star Wars or the Avengers or whatever, right? They've, they've got their, they've, they can name five white characters. Um, you know, so we have – the point of that exercise is just to sort of tease out this nameless you know, uh, Muslim villain who is sort of always a fixture of these movies when Muslims appear at all. Uh, or the angry, violent Muslim or whatnot, and, and even movies that try to nuance that at times, like Argo uh, Argo opens in its preamble, trying to complexify the, the events leading up to the Iranian Revolution, so you think the movie's going to be much more nuanced, and then in the end it's just a bunch of angry Muslims again. So um, that, that's, that's the challenge we face. And there are some movies that are trying to challenge that, but in television programs, Uh, we've got a long way to go though there aren't many programs or movies that do this well the one that comes to mind i I do discuss is a canadian show the uh, little mosque on the prairie which i've seen it's just a fantastic comedy but it's a sitcom and 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 of course they 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 toy with and they play with the stereotypes but you know a, a sitcom that focuses on muslims in a small town in canada you know that's that, that's very much outside the pale of the kind of TV shows and movies that we
0: typically encounter when it comes to uh, Muslims. And we need more of those shows. Right. Right. Yeah. I've had great success showing. And a lot of my colleagues I know of showing little mosque in the prairie in our, in our classes. So before we wrap things up and talk about some of your future projects, uh, could we spend a few minutes talking about how I think a lot of people listening to this, which I've alluded to are going to be interested in, in teaching in the classroom and how to make use of this excellent resource that you've provided. So have you either had a chance to use explicit chapters or sections from your book in class? I guess I'll ask that first.
1: Right. So, um, I, when I was writing the book, the writing, the manuscript I did in the process of writing and when I had a kind of a working copy of a chapter, I would use it in class. Um, in part, I was trying to test parts of the book out, so it was it was helpful in that sense to um, to sort of see how this worked with my students. And uh, but I haven't haven't used a book in a class since it came out. And I teach a course on Islamophobia every other year, and last year was not the year. So it's been out about a year, and I haven't taught the course. And this year I'm on sabbatical, so it'll be the year after where I have to make that decision. And my own inclination is not to use my own book in the classroom, and, and I might change my mind, but, uh, but uh, only because it's a little weird. And it's sure, – uh, sure. it, you know, they will certainly hear plenty of my views. And the, the entire way I designed the course is very much uh, reflective of the kind of stuff I find – that you find in the book. Um, but I certainly wrote the book thinking uh, that I hope it could be used in classrooms, uh, uh, whether it's an Islamic studies course or a course on Islamophobia. And I am trying to encourage more people to teach standalone courses on Islamophobia, which is not the same thing as an introduction to Islam course. And right, the students right. have to learn that very quickly. To study the bigotry towards a, a religious community is not the same thing as studying the actual religion they practice. I mean, there's a little right. bit of overlap, but but you are using very different categories. So so that that is certainly my, my hope as well. I do have a sample syllabus on the book's website. The the website for the book is thefearofislam.com, and if you go on that website under a, a, um, uh, a drop-down menu under resources, you will see a sample syllabus, and what I do in that sample syllabus is try to give uh, teachers um, ideas about ways they could use the book. Uh, what, you know, in, in the, For example, in the chapter on the media, what, what kinds of television shows or movies uh, could you show um, in, in conjunction with assigning that chapter? Including stuff that might not actually be in the book because I didn't have space to create it, or it's a movie that came out after the book was published, or something like that, uh, or the kinds of pedagogical exercises you could do, you know, in terms of following the media, um, uh, you know, and that sort of thing that could be adapted, you know, to the year 2016, since I don't discuss obviously that year in the in the book. Uh-huh. So, so there are resources on that website for anyone who's interested that I I hope could prompt some thinking about how the book could be used in the classroom. But either in an Islamophobia course, a history of religion course of Europe or the United States, or an Islamic studies course where there is a component to the course uh, on, um, on uh, Islamophobia. And I've even known of, uh, of one professor who used a book on a course on immigration in Europe, um, given that debates over immigration in Europe uh, oftentimes are synonymous with debates over the place of Muslims in Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's, that's really helpful to know for me and for our listeners that there's a sample syllabus available online. Are, is there, is there, so thinking about like the year 2016, is there a particular activity that you could share that could hopefully be useful, but also lure people to check out the the whole document? Well,
1: you know, it's, 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 we'll see how this goes this fall. Um, you know, one of the things I, I suggest, um, that students can do in an Islamophobia course in a given semester is either you know either keep a journal or in some way do writing assignments that do analysis of ongoing media coverage of Muslims or Islam, um, and that can be done anytime, right? Uh, but in the year 2016, I, I've just been imagining what would such an assignment look like in the year of Donald Trump, right? Which this book comes out in May of 2015 before. Trump is really a major player. And now in this Islamophobia sort of discourse, uh, but, but any given week, Elliot <laughs> could, could, could be uh, full of a journal writing and entries of, of, uh, or, you know, statements or proposals, policies, or media coverage after Paris attacks or media coverage after the Brussels attacks or the media coverage of Donald Trump's feud with the Khan family. Uh, I just think of all, you know, on any given week, uh, there are so many opportunities to to engage in contemporary media analysis. And I do encourage on that 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 page in terms of pedagogy that incorporating critical media studies into an Islamophobia course I think is very fruitful and it and it has a lot of payoffs beyond the topic of Islamophobia in terms of helping students and, you know, going back to Ingrid Mattson's comment, become better consumers of of the media, and that can be used in many other areas as well. So that's just one example. Or, you know, I, another suggestion I have is to to help students uh, keep track of social media, you know, tweets and Facebook postings uh, from people in the Islamophobia industry. And, you know, there's been plenty of that to keep track of. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there's a lot in 2016 that uh, that has happened that could feed that. In fact, I I, I only half jokingly say this, but the book comes out in May of 2015. And if you're talking to me in September of 2015, I, I already feel the book is a little outdated <laughs> because so much started to happen in the summer of 2015 um, mm-hmm. uh, with the presidential election cycle. And then with the particularly violent episodes in Paris and Brussels and, uh, and Orlando, uh, you know, there, there's almost this, this new sort of chapter that should be written just on the the past year, year and a half, it seems like because so much, so much has happened, so much has changed, and particularly in the United States, we have seen, you know, almost the legitimization now of overt Islamophobia for among a, a, a presidential candidate, a, a, a nominee of a major political party. For all of my complaints about the Bush administration or even the Obama administration, uh, we were still talking about much more subtle forms of Islamophobia, oftentimes not overtly stated as anti-Muslim and, and with this election cycle we have something completely different that probably would change the way I would teach an Islamophobia course in some ways uh, because of, uh, of what has just changed in the past year, year and a half alone.
0: Right. So that that offers, uh, I think, quite perfect prelude to the final question I have for you. So it sounds like if, if you wanted to, you could write um, part two of, of, of the book, but I don't know if that is on your mind. So what what do you see yourself working on, either currently or in the next five to ten years? Yeah, well, there
1: are two things, right? Uh, and, and all this is all related to, still to Islamophobia. So much more work still needs to be done in this area. What I'm doing right now on sabbatical, in my sabbatical year, I'm spending a year at the State Department in Washington, D.C. That's you know where I'm living right now in D.C. And I'm um, advising uh, the State Department on Islamophobia in Europe. So. I'm developing, hopefully, much better tools in the course of the sabbatical year for the policy-making side of, of this, you know, not just pointing out um, registration programs and security programs and counterterrorism programs and Islamophobic biases that might be embedded in them, but how can we move the needle from a policy perspective when it comes to Islamophobia, both in Europe and in the way the United States partners with Europe, but, you know, by extension, back here in the United States as well, and so I've never, I've never worked with this closely with the federal government or in the federal government, and so I'm, this is a, a project of sorts that I hope really does help me potentially develop a, a project or a, at least some resources that will help much better with how do we challenge Islamophobia from a policy perspective, which I talk about a little in the book, but but I'm getting much more experience than that this year. The other project I have is a is a book project I have in mind that I hope I find some time to write in the next couple of years um, that uh, is basically a book that uh, would be a short book that challenges the very, the very process, the act of people in the majority asking Muslims to condemn terrorism. The kind of common refrain that we hear after in Orlando or Paris or Brussels or going back to London or whatever is – you know, why don't Muslims condemn terrorism? Anymore? Or where are the moderate Muslims? Why aren't they speaking out? And we hear people ask that on all sides of the political spectrum. And I find the question, for a variety of reasons, very disturbing. It's, it's, it can be very subtly Islamophobic, but it very much reinforces some harmful dynamics and potentially harmful policies towards Muslims. And so that book project would be about sort of unpacking and dismantling that question and deconstructing it. And when we ask Muslim leaders or Muslims generally to condemn terrorism, and not the question really is not what does that say about Muslims and what they are or are not doing, but what does that say about the majority population? You know, What does that say about many politicians and journalists who are asking the question to begin with? And particularly, what does that say about our own ambivalent relationship with violence and the, the legacy of violence in the United States and in Europe? Um, the very obsession we have with with terrorism and Islam oftentimes reflects and says just as much about our own complicity in a violent world order, you know? And so I'd like to write a book that takes that question and turns it back on the majority population in terms of what are, what are these questions actually saying about quote unquote us, us being the non-Muslim majority. Mm -hmm.
0: So final, final question. Are you, are you optimistic? How would you characterize your, your prognosis about the future of Islamophobia in the United States and Europe?
1: Well, this last year has, has, has given me a lot of pause, frankly, because it's been a horrific year when it comes to Islamophobia. By almost any standard or measurement, uh, attacks on mosques, uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric online, hate crimes against Muslims in Europe and the United States, uh, the prevalence of anti-Muslim rhetoric in the political discourse, all of that uh, has increased this past year. So by most measures, things are getting worse um, and, and it's hard to know right now if we've kind of hit the ceiling or if there's still more room for things to get even worse. But um, in a year from now, we might know, at least here in the United States, we're, we're in the case of a presidential election. Um, but I, I do anticipate for the short run, things are not going to get better. Uh, I I'm, I'm try to be cautiously optimistic about the long, you know, the long run, the big picture. I, I think, um, you know, an example being the the feud between Donald Trump and the Khan family uh, in light of the DNC convention that happened a couple weeks ago. um, I think we saw uh, some limits to how much anti-Muslim rhetoric can you really engage in before a significant number of people uh, across the political spectrum say enough. And that was, that was a interesting episode in that regard. So, um, so there are some signs that this could be getting better. I think those of us who are, who are activists and trying to oppose Islamophobia are beginning better organized. We're probably never going to be as well funded as the Islamophobia industry, but we are we are putting ourselves out there more and more. And so there's a lot of a lot of hope there. And I also know from working with young adults and as a college professor, and and also from some of the data that's out there that young adults typically are are, are uh, much more open to. Embracing religious pluralism to interfaith engagement to, to uh, having more positive views of Muslims, having friends who are actually are Muslim. Um, and I think all that spells uh, a hopeful, hopeful future. Um, but I do have to, to, to sometimes force myself to remember all those things because, Elliot, when you study bigotry for a living, you are studying human beings and humanity's worst impulses. Uh, they're people behaving their worst, right? And so, doing that for a living, I oftentimes have this temptation to become cynical about the future. Like, well, I just I give up. <laughs> you know, we're we're, we're hopeless. Um, and studying bigotry kind of can tempt you to do that. But it's in studying the act the activism on the other side and in, encountering that in my public engagements that I have a lot more hope about the future, at least ten, fifteen years from now, even if the next several years, I don't think things are going to get significantly better.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, we all, we all appreciate the, the soberness for what it's worth. I, I felt like your book presented a, an overall optimistic tone and you know, that's my impression. Maybe others will disagree, but the vibe as it were, that I, I got from it was, was one of optimism. So thank you again, Todd, for letting us interview you and it's been great chatting with you. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. That was my conversation with Todd Green, Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College, about his wonderful new book, Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West, published by Fortress Press 2015. Thanks for listening.